Hi, Tiny Matters listeners. Sam here. A few months ago, we did a bonus episode Q&A about the HBO series The Last of Us, a show about a pandemic caused by a fungus that turned people into very terrifying zombies. We chatted with a mycologist about fact versus fiction in the show, and her take-home message was, yes, there are fungi that can infect and actually mind-control insects, but the chances of that happening to us is essentially zero because the fungus would probably have to evolve into a whole new fungal species, among other things. And actually right now, bacteria and viruses that are passed to humans from other species, like bats, pose way more of a threat when thinking about the next pandemic. But after that bonus episode aired, we received some emails from people who wanted to learn more about fungi, particularly the ones that won't turn us into zombies or even cause a pandemic, but are still really scary and problematic. One of our listeners, Betty from Sacramento, wrote in asking about fungal infections that seem to be on the rise in hospitals, specifically the fungus Candida auris. Remember, fungi can be mushrooms, molds, mildews, yeasts. They're super duper diverse. Candida auris is a yeast, and once it enters a person's body, it can cause severe organ and bloodstream infections, unless your immune system fights it off. Serious Candida auris infections are more likely in people who have a weakened immune system, maybe because they're taking some sort of cancer drug or autoimmune treatment. And people with breathing or feeding tubes or IV catheters are at the highest risk of infection. Treating fungal infections often means using an antifungal, and most Candida auris infections are treatable that way. But now, many strains are turning up that are multi-drug resistant, meaning the antifungals are not working, and the CDC now considers Candida auris to pose a serious global health threat. Not a pandemic, but a threat. However, many plants and animals are under threat of a fungal pandemic all the time. And Deboki and I, and many of our listeners, wanted to learn more about that. So we chatted with Emily Monison, an environmental toxicologist and adjunct professor in the Department of Environmental Conservation at UMass Amherst. Emily just wrote a book called Blight, Fungi and the Coming Pandemic. In it, she details how trade, travel, and a changing climate are making us all more vulnerable to invasion, how populations of bats, frogs, and salamanders face extinction, and how our national parks and crops like coffee, bananas, and wheat are under threat. She also covers some of the past drama surrounding regulation of plants and animals that are imported across countries and continents. For example, in the early 20th century, there was a lot of hubbub around Japanese cherry blossoms. I live in Washington, D.C., and people come from all over the U.S. to experience cherry blossom season every April. But in fact, the cherry blossoms they're seeing are not the first ones that were shipped over here. Those ones were actually found to be infected and were subsequently burned. So what you're seeing in D.C. today is actually the second batch. Deboki and my conversation with Emily, it's, it's not all cherry blossom drama or doom and gloom, and neither is her book. Let's remember, most fungi are harmless. Many are incredibly helpful, and very few are deadly. Prevention of pandemics in plants and animals is a massive challenge, but it's not impossible. There are scientists out there who are working tirelessly to protect species under threat and to bring back those that are on the verge of extinction. 
So we've linked to Emily's book in the episode description. If you'd like to go on a fungi, fungal pandemic deep dive, I would definitely recommend it. All right, let's hop into our conversation with her. Hope you enjoy. We're going to talk today about fungal epidemics, which is obviously a pretty bleak side of fungi. But we want to start off by just talking about what the importance of fungi are. What would a world look like without fungi? How do you see them fitting into this world? I think a world without fungi would, we would not be here probably. It would be a world piled up with dead stuff. Fungi are major decomposers, which also means that they contribute to nutrient cycling, which is also very important. In your book, you said something like the planet would be piled high with dead bodies or something like that, which is a a worrisome image. For many of us, I think conceiving of what a fungal pandemic in humans might look like can be kind of tough. So I'm wondering, is there a fungal disease that you find helpful in order to describe or help make that picture a little bit clearer to people? So first, um, just need to clarify that like a a full-on fungal pandemic like we've just experienced with the COVID virus is very, very unlikely. I don't think you could find anyone who would say that that kind of thing is a possibility. So it'd be very different. And that's because they're just totally different organisms. Fungi are not communicable. Usually we don't spread them person to person, can't sneeze on somebody and give them a fungus, usually. So that's a big difference. They're just not that communicable. But If it were to happen, that would be sci-fi kind of scary. And the reason is not because we become zombies, but because fungi in the species that I do write about, fungi that have gone pandemic, usually spread by spores. Fungi produce millions of spores. Spores can, some of them can live very long time in the environment, so they don't go away. You know, so fungal pandemics in humans, probably not a concern, but fungal pandemic in other species, definitely a concern. But the reason to ha- to, that I included humans in the book is because there are definitely emergent fungal pathogens. And one of the ones that have physicians and mycologists worried about and public health workers worried about is Candida auris. And for those who are infected with it, who tend to be those who are immunocompromised or in the hospital or long-term healthcare settings, this is where that fungus spreads. It has a high mortality rate. So it, you know, there are reasons to worry about emergent fungi, but fungal pandemics in humans, probably not. And I guess coming off of that, I found it super interesting the way that you were talking about how scientists and doctors will talk about yeast infections as a disease of antibiotics. Can you talk a little bit more about how that's happened and why antibiotics are related to our susceptibility to fungal infections? So, of course, antibiotics are a great thing. But just like there's been a problem with the rise of certain bacterial infections stemming from taking antibiotics, the same thing can happen with fungi. And the reason for that is that, you know, we live with a microbiome of bacteria, fungi, and other microbes. And so we're kind of this whole community of living organisms. And when antibiotics, particularly broad-spectrum antibiotics, knock out a bunch of bacteria, those members of the community are gone, at least temporarily. And when they're gone, that gives the opportunity for other microbes to either take over or have a chance to kind of bloom. We have many more bacteria than we have fungi in our bodies. So when we do suppress that, there's the opportunity for some fungi uh, yeasts to emerge. So 
we talked about fungi developing this resistant to drugs, which is like one way that our behavior and our advancements has led to challenges now with fungi. But another thing that you'll hear about with fungal infections and just fungi in general is how they can increase or spread with global warming or become more dangerous as an effect of climate change. Can you explain more about why that is? We've talked about the microbiome before, so that's one sort of protection that we have against the fungi that are in us and on us. Another protection we have is our immune system. And a third thing we have is our body temperature. So we run pretty hot, mammals run pretty hot. And most fungi really don't grow at our warm body temperatures. They tend to prefer cooler temperatures. So those that are going to infect us need to be able to tolerate our body temperatures. And what the concern is now with is that as the climate changes, you know, fungi are out in the environment. They also produce lots of offspring. Those spore-producing ones produce millions, which is sort of a recipe for evolution. You've got the pressure of a warming environment and you've got the opportunity for mutations because you're making lots of offspring, then there's a possibility that some of those are going to be able to survive in a warmer temperature. Then once they get to be able to live at our temperature, then there's the potential for an emergent fungal pathogen. And this is what scientists think might have happened with that candida auris, the one that I mentioned earlier. It's a yeast. It's most likely living out there in, environment, in the environment. Lots of yeast do. And at some point, maybe a decade or two ago, some of those candida auris evolved to tolerate warmer temperature and were able to make the jump into our body and grow in our bodies. In your book, you focus on fungal infections in a number of plants and animals, of course, including us. But I would say the majority of your book does not focus on humans. So I'm wondering if we can get into plants a little bit. All of the epidemics you write about in your book start with a fungus that was relocated from its home to somewhere else. For instance, the fungus Cryphonectria parasitica is native to East Asia and Southeast Asia, but when it made it to Europe and then North America in the early 1900s, it wiped out almost all of our chestnut trees. So I'm wondering, why is it that chestnut trees in Asia can withstand this fungus, but our trees in the U.S. cannot? Yeah, that's a good question. So a lot of the fungi that I write about are not native to these places that they've been transported. And so chestnut blight was co-evolved with the chestnuts there. And so they've you know, come to some uneasy kind of relationship where the fungus can infect the tree and the tree can still survive and live on with the fungus. But when that fungus was transported to the U.S., probably sometime in the late 1800s, early 1900s, with probably some little seedlings or saplings from, you know, its place of origin, and they were taken here because lots of people like to grow different kinds of chestnut trees, like Chinese chestnut trees and Japanese chestnut trees. They were very popular. That fungus came along with those, and then it found our American chestnut trees, which never saw it before. So it didn't have the opportunity to evolve any kind of uh, resistance to it or any kind of immunity to that particular fungus. And within a year or two years, it killed well over a thousand trees, like just all the chestnuts were gone. And within decades, it spread down the East Coast along the Appalachians and wiped out the chestnuts. We were talking about mammals. Usually we 
are not that easy to target, but one of the sections you, in your book is about bats and uh, the white nose syndrome and how devastating fungi have been to bats. So can you talk about what white nose syndrome is and why bats are susceptible and also what researchers are trying to do to, to help bats survive? White nose syndrome is caused by a fungus called gymnoascus, uh, pseudogymnoascus destructans, or PD. So bats, bats run very hot. You know, they're flying mammals. So how does the fungus infect bats? Bats also hibernate. And when bats hibernate, they go to their hibernicular or their cave or wherever they're hibernating, and their bodies drop to match the temperature of that location. So when the bat's body temperatures come down, then the fungus can infect them. How that fungus got here, it's another story just like the chestnut trees. That fungus has been found in caves in Europe. There are bats that manage to survive that are infected with that fungus in Europe. Again, they've evolved probably to tolerate the fungus. So the thought is that maybe some cavers with mud on their boots went from exploring caves in Europe, maybe. And this is, you know, a hypothesis. Nobody really knows, but it seems pretty likely that somebody came here from there and went to the caves here and was exploring caves here and probably dropped some spores of that fungus. It probably happened many times, not likely that it was just one shot, but whatever it was. The bats here had never seen that. They had no defenses to it. And so it's been totally devastating to the bat populations. In some places, when you look at the numbers of before and after the arrival of white nose, 90% of some populations have been killed off by the fungus. I'm wondering if you can share with listeners how it could be useful to study the bats that can survive. There are some survivors, and they find that there are small populations still surviving in the caves when they go back. One study, what they found was that those that were surviving tended to have a heavier bodies, more weight. They, they were just in generally um, you know, more fit. They called it, some people called it the fat or bat study or the fat bat study because they had more on them and they thought maybe this will help them, has helped them to survive. I interviewed another uh, scientist who was studying the genetics of surviving bats. And what she found looking at the genetics was that it seemed that there were certain genes that were a higher frequency, occurred at a higher frequency in the populations of surviving bats. Some of them have to do with metabolism. So it may be that there's a genetic underpinning to those bats that were able to put on more weight. But it does seem like that might be one of the hopes is that there's enough genetic diversity in the population and they're allowed to breed that there will be some survivors because they might have this genetic advantage. And that kind of gets into one of the more hopeful things we wanted to speak with you about. Fungal epidemics, pandemics are not fun to think about, but important to think about. But, you know, this is not a situation where people are throwing up their hands and saying, well, that's just what's going to happen. There's nothing we can do. There are a lot of people thinking about how do different species, whether they be plant or animal, survive a fungal infection or epidemic within their community? What allows them to do that? And could we, with that information, not only prevent animals or plants from getting sick, but maybe even resurrect some of them? I'm wondering maybe if there's an example you want to share of people trying to bring back a plant from extinction. The example of that would be the American chestnut. And there's a great effort to bring that back for years. After the disease hit, 
and people realized that there were these Asian chestnuts that could survive the disease, they did go right to, well, okay, those trees must have some kind of resistance. How could we capture that and get it into our American chestnut trees? And so a group of scientists came up with this 30-year plan to breed in the resistance gene from the chestnut tree. They thought it was a gene or two. And then breed out all of the other qualities of the Chinese chestnut trees because they grow differently and you know, capture all the American chestnut qualities. So in the end, after 30 years, you would have a tree that looked like an American chestnut tree, but it had some resistance genes. Unfortunately, genetics was a lot more complicated than that. And it turns out there wasn't just one gene or three genes, but several different genes. And scientists only just discovered this in the last couple of years when they could do better genetic analysis. So for 30 years, the American Chestnut Foundation has been doing an amazing job of recruiting volunteers and scientists to carry out this 30-year rooting program. At the same time, Back in the 80s, another scientist, William Powell, had the idea to what if we could find a resistance gene and use genetic engineering to insert that gene into chestnut trees. Then you would be sure that you have an American chestnut tree. You're just inserting one gene and you would have a resistant tree. The scientists did identify a gene that would provide resistance. So when the fungus infects chestnut trees, it releases a, a chemical to help it break in. And that gene, uh, what it did was break down that chemical. So he said, well, if we take this gene from those plants and we insert it into chestnuts, can we make resistant chestnuts? And they've just gotten to that point where they've actually inserted that gene, it's called OXO, into chestnut trees, American chestnut trees. Um, and those chestnut trees are resistant to the blight. The trees that the American Chestnut Foundation has been breeding for 30 years are not as resistant as they hoped they would be. They're all working together, William Powell and the American Chestnut Foundation, to because all of what everybody wants is to just get some chestnut trees back into the wild. How should we be approaching balancing this tension between needing to trade, needing to live in a global economy, but also preventing, to the extent that we can, a really dangerous outbreak that affects our food, that affects wildlife, and affects our health? You know, apparently the diet here before we brought all these plants was pretty boring. <laughs> Just if we think of most of the stuff we eat, it's not native to here. There is a lot of regulations that are now on incoming plants and plants that can move across borders and even across state borders. But there's obviously not a lot. Uh, I mean, not enough. The rise of the late blight in tomato, that's something that just happened that's a fungus-like organism. It's called Phytophthora infestans. It's the same kind of organism that contributed to the Irish potato famine and also infects mm -hmm. tomatoes. And that, like, just one season traveled up the East Coast. So, you know, even though we have regulations, it's still a problem. I spoke to Megan Romberg, who's got the title of national mycologist, which is kind of, I was like, we have a national mycologist? And she goes, yeah, but just for plants. We actually have two. <laughs> When plants come into the ports, there are only a certain number of ports that imports can come into. There are inspectors there, but they can only see so much. They can only identify so much. And the things that get them stumped, they send over to Megan, and then she has to identify them within a day. And then there's all the, just a, she only has a short time period to identify them before they're released. What people would love, I think, is if anything coming into this country was first checked for disease and comes across with a certificate that this plant or animal is disease-free. 
do we have that kind of capacity? Not yet, but you know, the hopeful thing is with COVID, just think of those rapid tests that we are using all the time. You know, over the past decade or so, there's been some advances in tests that you could just give a sample and it can provide you with lots of DNA information on what's in that sample. And so once you start knowing the genetics of your pathogen, you could be able to identify lots of different pathogens. One hopeful thing I think I did write about was the work of Karen Lips and Peter Jenkins and others. So Karen studies BD, which is the uh, frog-killing fungus. That's a global pandemic. It's everywhere. We have it here. We've had it here for a long time. A cousin to that fungus called B-cell has been killing salamanders in Europe. Okay, We have an amazing diversity of salamanders here. Um, especially in the Appalachian Mountains. So there's a lot of fear that what would happen if that B-cell makes it over here. Salamanders are very popular in the animal trade. So people like to trade salamanders and have pet salamanders in their terraria. So, you know, they worked with the federal regulators. They worked with nonprofits. What they wanted was that kind of certificate where, yep, anything that comes into this country is disease-free, but that's not really realistic. So what they did get was a ban on... I think 200 different salamander species, which are most likely to carry B-cell. I think most scientists would say that if you want to protect any species from these kinds of things, preserving genetic diversity is the most important. You know, if you conserve the diversity in those populations, hopefully some of them are going to be resistant to whatever comes at them in the future. There was one point in the book where you said, wouldn't it be so great if we went to the grocery store and there wasn't just the Cavendish banana, but you had 10 different banana varieties. There are people who are thinking about genetically engineering the Cavendish banana to be more fungus resistant as a monoculture. But ideally, you would just have tons of different species of banana so that if one was infected, there's a good chance not all of them would be. So it's not like we're putting all of our eggs in one basket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a group that is working with bananas because a really destructive fungus that's hitting lots of banana plantations and it's it's a problem. To have these huge monocultures is a problem and plantations are just like huge monocultures along with other kinds of things that we grow like wheat. That another scientist said, you know, a uh, a monoculture is just like a banquet. It's a feast for fungi because fungi infect, you know, some plants in this one corner. They produce their millions of spores and they spread over the rest of the plantation. We ought to advocate for, and that's one of the few things that we can do, the personal things we can do is, you know, expand our palate and buy different kinds of bananas, different kinds of, you know, grains so that we're not just tied to the certain staple crops. For listeners, maybe this is the first time they've thought about fungi in this way. Is there anything you would want them to know in terms of how they could think about either their behavior or things they could look for in terms of advocacy? I think the awareness is important. Advocate for or support the growth of different kinds of varieties of foods. And you can take seriously when you're traveling in the airport signs that say, you know, do not take any any banana related material into Costa Rica. Don't do it. One of the places I did get to go to was Costa Rica, just go to banana plantation. You get to the airport and there are the signs all over the place, like don't carry banana, anything. And people are just not even reading them. And it's the same thing with the mud in your boots when you travel. Some places want you to remove your um, muddy shoes and have them disinfected or whatever. Do it. Sometimes little things can help. 
big things when it's really not a big problem to just throw that fruit away or not take those plants that you thought you were going to take or whatever. Just don't do it. Emily ends Blight by talking about responsibility, our responsibility to protect each other, plants, and animals from the next fungal disease, and a responsibility that should really extend as we travel beyond Earth. We do sanitize what we send into space, but Emily writes, sterilization techniques work well enough on ships and rovers, but humans can't be sterilized. Wherever we travel, we will take our terrestrial microbiome with us, even to Mars. So that makes me think, what if we do make contact with life beyond Earth one day? Will some of what's happened to so many organisms on our planet just happen again elsewhere? How can we prevent that? What responsibility do we have to the rest of our solar system? Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tiny Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society. And thank you to Emily Monison for joining us. You can find me on social at Sam J Science, and you can find Deboki at Okie underscore Boki. We'll see you next time. <laughs>